Philippians chapter number four, we're going to talk about contentment this morning, this idea of not possessing but being possessed. And there's, there's more than just contentment in this passage, but that's the primary thrust of this passage, which I've been, I've really been just eagerly awaiting this text because it's a beautiful piece of scripture. They all are, but this one especially to me. So Philippians 4, verse number 10. Paul writes to them and says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye lacked, or wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. In everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I want to give you three principles this morning. Certainly there's more than three principles contained in this text, but I've boiled it down to three that I think are the primary principles to glean. The first one is what I'll call the concern principle, and that's simply that expressions of love can encourage us. Paul starts this new thought process in verse number 10, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity, not that I speak in respect of want. Paul says, I am joying, and something is causing me to joy greatly. Something is really encouraging me. Something is putting wind in my sails. You say, okay, what's that? What is causing me to joy greatly in Jesus? Well, we saw earlier in chapter 2, and we'll see even next week, that Paul tells what it was. It was a gift that the Philippian church had sent to Paul via the hand of Epaphroditus, that they had tried to care for him. When you were in first century Rome and you were a prisoner, the state did not care for you. They did not give you three square meals a day. They did not give you an orange jumpsuit so that you weren't cold. You were responsible as a prisoner to provide your own clothing and provide your own food or starve to death or freeze to death, but you had to do it on your own. And this church is now giving Paul a gift. We don't know what exactly is in the gift. Maybe it was strictly money so that he could use that money to buy the things. Maybe they sent clothes. Maybe they sent some parchment so that he could read there in his house arrest scenario. But they sent him a gift to care for him and to help him. And they had a long history, this church did, of supporting Paul of giving to Paul, of trying to be a blessing to Paul, but apparently there had been a lengthy amount of time that had elapsed since they had been able to bless him and give to him because he says, "Your uh, now at the last, your care of me hath flourished again. We're not sure exactly how much time has taken place, but probably years since they have been able to give to Paul and to help him out. And he says, now, your care is flourishing. This is an, as a horticultural term. It's a botanical term. It's a now you are a spring flower blooming again. Now you're coming back to life again. Now your giving to me is flourishing and blooming once more. It's coming to me. And then it's clear to say it's, it's where you were careful, but you lacked opportunity. Now, the same English word careful is used in verse number six of the same chapter, which meant anxious. It's a different Greek word here. It's the same English word, but it's a different Greek word, and this means thoughtful. Paul says, I rejoice greatly because you're giving to me, and you haven't been able to give to me for a while, but now it's flourishing again, it's blooming again, but I know 
you were careful, you were thinking about me, but you just lacked opportunity. I know it's not because you lacked desire. I know it's not because you didn't want to. I know it's not because you, you weren't praying for me. You weren't wanting to be on my team and support me. It just logistically was impossible for you to be able to give to me. And now you have the opportunity to be able to give to me again. And then he says in verse number 11, not that I speak in respect of want. He says, don't infer the wrong thing here. This, this joy that I have inside is not really because of the gift. I can do with or without the gift. God's going to take care of me. My joy is in the greater reality that the gift represents. This gift represents that our friendship is being renewed. This gift represents that you're still a partner with me in the gospel. My joy inside and my encouragement that's happening in my heart is because of your giving, but really it's because of what this means. Paul's clear to say this is not a strictly utilitarian friendship. This isn't just let me use you and get something out of this. This really is a heartfelt expression of love to me, and I'm feeling this heartfelt expression of love, so I am joying and rejoicing greatly. Now, do you see the power of what expressing love, even in a tangible way, can do for somebody's heart? Paul's saying, you are expressing this to me in a very tangible way with your gift, and this is doing something inside of me. This is why all last week, hopefully what you did and what we did together as a church family with our Love Your Neighbor Week, that you got some cards and you went through all last week with intentionality, trying to be a blessing and love and sow seeds of kindness to people in our community. Why would we do that? Because we're commanded? Yes, we are commanded. Because our church just kind of provoked us to good works? Yeah, sure. But we do that partially because we understand what that does for people. We understand what it means to someone when you pay for their meal in the drive-thru, they're behind you, and you pay for their meal. We understand what it means to take someone to the side at Children's who's going through a cancer struggle and to pray with those parents and those children and to spend some time with them and ask the Lord to bless them. We understand what it means to try to be intentionally loving people, and Paul says, you did this to me, and this matters to me. We experienced this just yesterday, probably, I don't know how many of you showed up, but there were probably 60 or 70 of us yesterday that went together, and we did some, some acts of love and service and kindness in our community. We, we helped at Harrison Hills and built a fence and did some projects there, and I was part of a team that delivered baskets to our police departments and our volunteer fire departments. And it was so much fun yesterday to go to, especially to the fire departments, because that's that's strictly volunteer and just a labor of love from these men and women to just give back to our communities, but to take them a big old basket, just jam-packed with all kinds of stuff that was like 20 pounds, and to hand that to them and say, we love you, and we're appreciative for you, and here in a month, we're going to have a service to try to honor you and love you a little bit more, and it was great to see smiles on faces and appreciation, and something happened on the inside when we handed baskets to people and said, here's a gift, we love you. Just, and this is not a toot my own horn, Lord knows my heart, it's honestly not. But my wife and I tried to engage in Love Your Neighbor Week in in several different practical ways this week. And one of them was Wednesday, I had a a waitress at a restaurant who recently married and and, uh, first pregnancy, about 19 weeks pregnant, and we struck up a great conversation and and was able to to pray for her and just had a good time. And I thought, I'm going to send her a book. I found a a book that I really enjoy on pregnancy and expecting for uh, her and her husband. And it took me two minutes on Amazon and probably $7 to send the book to the restaurant. It was, it was nothing. 
It was $7 in two minutes, but I guarantee you, I don't know when she got it, yesterday or today, or she'll get it tomorrow. I don't know what her shifts were, but I guarantee you she's going to get that book and it's going to do something to her heart. When she sees that somebody thought about me, somebody loved me, somebody cared for me. Let me get very practical with this for a moment. Think through in your own, in your own mind, take inventory. How have you showed love in a practical way to those closest to you last week? Hopefully you did it for your neighbors and for those, and we encourage you as a church to do that. But how do you do that for your spouse? How did you show love in a tangible way to your children, to your parents, if you're younger? Maybe you're not younger and your parents are 70. How do you show love to them? Well, I went to work. I provided for my kids. Yeah, no, don't count. What did, what did you do extra? I'm glad you did. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you did, but don't count. What did you do practically to show this to someone? Expressions of love encourage us. They help us. It's been interesting. I've been studying here recently for a sermon series I hope to, to roll out for about three weeks in January of next year on genders and what the Bible has to say about genders and the differences and those sorts of things. But I've been doing some reading and trying to, to listen and absorb some content uh, specifically on, on men's brains and women's brains and those sorts of things. And it was interesting to just here a few weeks ago come across something that was right in line with this. It was, it was about adult brains, male and female, and just the, what we have at our disposal now through MRIs and CAT scans and PET scans to be able to map the brains and see what happens in different scenarios. And cortisol is a stress hormone that men and women have, but we, re, we react to it differently, and it does things in our brains. But when we get stressed, something happens. Specifically in a female brain, when cortisol is introduced, the, the flow of blood to the emotional center of the brain is eight times greater than that of a man. So a female has more connections just in general there. They have kind of this informational superhighway when it comes to emotion and intuition, whereas men have like this old country dirt road. It's just the way it is. Like literally physically, like science tells us this. But when stress is introduced, the blood flow amps up for a female to really engage that part of the brain. This is why if you get into an argument with your spouse, men, that you will find women, typically more than men, have a tendency to go historical. Not hysterical, but historical. <laughs> that you start to get in some sort of spat and all of a sudden the mental elevator goes to the second floor. You say, what's on the second floor? There's a vault of memories that you know nothing about. You were there for them, but she has them banked away, and she can start to rummage through all those boxes and find stuff. And all of a sudden, she'll tell you, I remember exactly 37 months ago, we were in the kitchen, and you had your arm on that chair, and your little pinky was up all weird, and you had your khakis on that you only wear twice a year, and your white polo, you hadn't shaved that day, and I asked you what you thought, and you looked, I will never forget it, you looked at me, and you said, I really just don't know. And that made me feel, I can't tell you how that made me feel. Meanwhile, you're back at first base like 37 months. Like, I gotta do math, 12, carry the one. I, that was three years ago. She can do that. Like physically, she can do that. Now this matters because there's another hormone inside of our brains that men and women, once again, respond to it differently, but uh, this reduces stress in both of us called oxytocin. Oxytocin is what a, a female gets a huge dose of after birthing a child. 
you go through the jaws of death and you would think that like you'd be out for the count for weeks, but all of a sudden there's this surge of it that turns the lights on, brings you back to life, creates bonding with the baby and lower stress. But oxytocin is produced in females specifically when affection and acts of love are demonstrated, they're produced in small amounts inside of a female's brain. It can happen in a man as well, but much more prevalent in a female brain. And what it means is that when you do what Paul is talking about here, when you show expressions of love, men to your wives, or fathers to your, to your daughters, sons to your mothers, when you show those random acts of love, something happens there. And, it, and it's those frequent occurrences. It's that not just a perennial flower that's blooming occasionally, but to be an evergreen and to constantly, consistently show that does something. And we don't need science to tell us this, that we know from the Bible that we should show love and we should care and we should have affection. We know that biblically, but science doesn't hurt the case here. That when you do it, it helps. So practically speaking, for a guy, and this is how at least my guy brain works, I would think, okay, I haven't shown random acts of love. Pastor Mark encourages me to. So tomorrow I'm going to get off work and I'll bring home 24 roses. I'll bring home two dozen roses. That'll cover me for at least two weeks, right? Like that should buy me a, a, a bit of time, right? You know, 24. We're, we're left brain calculating, you know, trying to figure it out, men. That ain't the way it works. We're like 24. That's 24 points. Like it should be at least. No, no, it's one point. You, one rose, one point. Six roses, one point. A dozen, one. 24, one. 100, maybe two. But it's, it's not, it's what Paul's saying. It's not the gift really that matters. It's the thought. It's the expression that matters. It doesn't matter if it's one or 24. This is why there can be so much marital discord when a man thinks, well, I'm going to work. I'm doing better. I'm climbing the ladder. I'm, I'm earning more income. Look, look how comfortable my job has made our family, and you can buy yourself flowers. I can't, look what I'm doing over here. That should be like a billion points. You know how I'm killing myself while I'm going to? That's not the way it works. You go to work, one point. You stay faithful throughout that day and you don't cheat on her, one point. You come home, one point. You have three points. She went to work or stayed home or whatever she did. She stayed faithful and she showed up too. You're even. When you come home, you're even, and if she has candlelight on the table or your favorite meal, you're in trouble, Broseph. Like she, because she is calculating, like she matched napkins to plates, and she gave herself 10 points for that. She remembered your favorite meal, points. She went and bought your favorite meal, points. She is expressing love in all these little ways and banking it up. Meanwhile, you're broke. Like you got, you got nothing to offer. What, what this is, is Paul really trying to get at marital advice in this passage? No, I don't think he is, but you can apply it. What Paul is saying is that you expressed your love in a very tangible way. And I know deep down that you were thinking about me and that you cared about me, and that manifested itself when you had an opportunity, you seized the opportunity and you showed it to me. And it's not really the gift that matters, it's what you did for me that matters. And that expression of love encourages me and it causes me to joy greatly. And you can apply that to marriage. 
You can apply that to, to all of our relationships. Paul says, understand the concern principle. Understand what it means to be thoughtful and caring and to express your love in tangible ways. Don't underestimate that. It can have a tremendous effect. Secondly would be the contentment principle. I would say it this way. Situations in life can educate us. Paul says in verse number 11, I've learned that in whatsoever state I am, in any situation I'm in, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Abased is this idea of running low. It was oftentimes used in Greek literature of a river that was in drought and depleted. Abounding is a river that's overflowing its banks. He says, I know how to be in drought. I know how to be flourishing and to abound. I know in everywhere and in all things. Now that is, that's a very universal scope. Everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul says, I have learned contentment. You say, what's contentment? Contentment is an inward, peaceful disposition to your station in life. It's an inside, peaceful disposition to where, wherever life has you. And Paul says, this is something I've learned. I have grown in, I have learned what it means to be content. Now, there's two primary ways to learn. You can learn through mentally, just assuming knowledge, instruction, and you can learn through experience. So, for example, go to 1 Timothy 6. Let's learn this. That's a few pages to the right of Philippians. We'll put it on the screen if you can't find it. Let's learn contentment through instruction for a moment. I preached a whole sermon on this, on this passage about a year ago. You can go on, online and you can discover more. I'll give you a very quick review to help us learn this topic, contentment. 1 Timothy 6, look at verse number 5. Now, I'm picking up midstream, so I'll explain a little bit as I go. But midstream, Paul says, perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. That's a very negative verse. Paul says there are perverse men, men with corrupt minds, they're bankrupt when it comes to truth. Get away from them and they say something. What they say and what they assume is incorrect and what they assume is that money or wealth or things is an indication of godliness. The gain is godliness. The more I have, the more spiritual I am. And the logic goes like this. If I have stuff, that means God is blessing me. If God is blessing me, that must, that must mean that I'm doing something right. Here too, if I have stuff, I'm doing something right. Stuff equals godliness. My prosperity and spirituality are synonymous with each other. They go hand in hand. And Paul says, that's trash. Get away from that. If that's true, then Paul is very unspiritual at the moment when he writes Philippians because he's stuck in a jail cell needing a, a present from Philippi. He says that, that is, that's not the way it works. And bonus content, there is a flip side of this that is, that is poverty gospel and, and poverty theology. That is, the less you have, the more spiritual you are. 
That it's spirituality by subtraction, that I starve my body to feed my soul. You would find this is where you would take a vow of poverty or a vow of celibacy. Why would you ever do that? Well, we think that we'll somehow be more spiritual if we do. It's, it's the idea of I'm going to go live in a tent in the woods and, and grow my own vegetables and drink rainwater and make all my own clothes and have a zero carbon footprint because that'll be spiritual. Paul says... He doesn't say specifically that poverty is, is trash there, but he does in Colossians 2. He says that. In, in either one, he says, no, that's not the way it works. What you want to get is Philippians 4. You want to get contentment. You want to learn how to be high and low and be content. How to take whatever God gives you, that I'll, I'll abound or I'll be abased. I'll, I'll be in a drought season. I'll be in a rainy season. Either way, I'm content with whatever the Lord gives me. He does say, though, the next verse, that godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, you want to know about gain? I'll tell you about gain. Take godliness and put contentment with it. That's great gain. Your godliness that is profitable goes to greatly profitable if you'll have contentment with it. You say, what will I gain with contentment? I think that I'll be more tepid. I think I'll be less aggressive to climb the ladder at work. I think that I'll actually have less. You'll gain the world with contentment. You may gain your marriage because you're content enough to stay put in your marriage and not go searching for love elsewhere. You may gain valuable time with your kids and years with your kids because you're content with your financial station and you're not a workaholic constantly chasing another dollar. You may gain what you need in order to be generous because now I have contentment in my heart. I'm getting extra. I don't need to upgrade, 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 upgrade. I can just give some away and I can be a generous person. You may gain joy and peace. And most specifically in Philippians 4, Paul says that this contentment is producing in me a gain of having a life that is not hijacked by my circumstances. That I can be planting churches or in prison and I'm content. I can have a lot and I can have little and be content. I have a life that's Teflon. I, it doesn't matter what, what gets thrown at me. I've learned to be content in Jesus. So you can learn that contentment is gain. You won't waste a lot of money on things you would have bought that you didn't need if you're content. You gain a ton. So the, the point is, we should take our very cumbersome sack of discontentment and lay it down. And pick up the cloak of contentment and say, I'm going to wear this because it's real light and it's tailor-made and it feels good. Paul says, understand godliness, contentment, great gain. Then he says seven and eight, he gives us some logic. We brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can take nothing out. Think about what you have. You bring it in, are you gonna take it out? Nope. Everything that you have, God gave you and it's going to somebody else. Talk to the funeral director, talk to the embalmer, talk to the coroner, it's going to somebody else. Because you don't bring it in, you don't take it out. So having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Basic logic. What did you need when you were born? Food, clothes. So be content with that. Is it wrong to have more than that? No, it's not. Paul at times had more than that. He said that I, I abounded. But he says this is all you basically need. And it teaches us that contentment does not come from possessing things. It comes from being possessed by him. That he has me. That I'm in his grasp. He says all you need is food and clothing. Verse 9, just to finish the thought. They that will be rich, or you could say those that will to be rich, or desire to be rich, or crave to be rich, they, this is strong, fall into temptation and a snare, 
and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. He says, you neglect contentment and you opt for discontentment. You run the risk of falling into a trap. You run the risk of falling into temptation. You run the risk of being controlled by harmful habit-forming desires. You run the risk of plunging headfirst into destruction. You run the risk of wandering from the faith. And you run the risk of filling your life with sorrows. That's strong. He says, so opt to be content. Do away with discontentment. Don't be, don't be the discontented person. And what happens is one of two things is happening. You are growing in your aptitude or you're growing in your appetite. Either first, you're growing in, what, in learning what it means to be content. And you're starting to understand and you're starting to leverage your situations and your scenarios, good and bad, you're starting to leverage them towards contentment. Or you have an appetite that's growing, and that's the discontentment, and that appetite will always want more. You will be sucked into a vortex of wants that will make you a tragically small person if you don't, if you don't figure out how to be content. So you can learn that way. You can just look at Scripture and open it up and have all that you need to learn what it means to be content. But what is Paul saying in Philippians 4? He's saying, I learned a different way. He's saying, I learned through life. I've learned by being immersed in pain. I've learned through the school of hard knocks. He's saying, I don't hypothetically know that this could be true. I'm telling you, I'm living it firsthand, this is true. Uh, Paul had money. We know his biography. He had a wealthy family. He had a great education. He had a lot of status and prestige when he was, when he was a Pharisee. He was a very, he, he was a, a colossal of an intellect, a very metropolitan man. And Paul lost all that when he went Team Jesus. He traded all that in for torture and for being beaten and for being ostracized and being shipwrecked in the deep. Were there high moments even in, in, inside of his life in Christ? Sure there were, but as a whole, there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that he assumed and he gave up a very comfy life. I, I thought back as I was prepping this this week to even the beginning of our series. If you remember like forever ago, we started the series with Acts 16. That's the story of the start of the church at Philippi. It's the inception of this church. And Paul went to town. He went over to Macedonia, into Philippi. And if you remember, there were three people that got saved to start the church. Lydia, the little slave girl, and then the Philippian jailer. Lydia, the cosmopolitan CEO businesswoman who had a lot of money. Then you had the little slave girl who was possessed by her owners and had a spirit of divination. She was a fortune teller that they were using her to turn a profit. And I don't know if it went down this way, but I could picture this, that Paul goes into Philippi, leads Lydia to the Lord, and the text is very clear that Lydia says, let me care for you. Come to my house, room with me. Paul had three companions with him. He had Luke, Silas, and Timothy. All four of you guys, come over, lodge with me. Let me feed you. Let me care for you. Let me help you abound, because she had the means to do it. And I can picture Paul, Timothy, Luke, Silas sitting down for dinner, and Lydia's chef made them a medium filet. And Paul is just carving that thing up and it's melting in his mouth to the glory of Jesus. 
just thanking him. And he reaches over and he slaps Timothy because he had ketchup on his, on his filet. And he said, don't do that. That's too good. It was Heinz ketchup. And he still, no. And the next day, I don't know if it happened this way, but the next day, he goes and he leads the little slave girl to Jesus. And what happens? Her masters get mad and they beat them and they throw them in prison. And there, Paul and Silas are 24 hours later singing praises to God in prison. In Philippi, they would have seen this. That maybe in the scope of 24 hours, he went from abounding to abasing. That they would have watched him have contentment in both of those stations. And Paul says, I've I have learned what it means to be high and to be low. I know what it's, what it's like to live off a of ramen, and I know what it's like to eat a good steak. I know what it's like to be healthy, and I know what it's like to be sick. I know what it's like to have applause and people admiring me, and I know what it's like to have people ostracizing me and persecuting me and criticizing me. I get both of them, and I've learned contentment. Paul, how, how did you learn contentment? How in the world do you have the resources to be patient and trusting and suffering? How in the world do you have the resources to be humble and gracious and grateful when you're abounding in, in, in prosperity? How did you find, what's the key to this? Well, he tells us it's the capability principle. Verse 13, life in Christ empowers us. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, I don't know if there's a more misquoted verse in all of the Bible. This is a very slap it on a coffee mug and just hang on to that verse and quote it for whatever you want sort of verse. I can get the promotion at work because Jesus strengthens me. I can make the football team because Jesus strengthens me and he told me I would. I can put it on the back of my mixed martial arts t-shirt and knock this guy out in the first round because he strengthens me and put him in a, a rear naked chokehold. We, people apply this all over the place in ways that are less than biblical. But what do you do if you apply it that way when the unbeliever gets the promotion at work? Or you don't make the football team because you're five foot nothing, 85 pounds, and you can't run fast, throw far, or catch. You're not making the football team. I don't care how much you quote that verse. It just ain't happening. I learned early on in my life. I grew up in Kentucky. Basketball was king. I have four brothers. We played a lot of ball. But I learned very early on that I had been smitten with a disease called Caucasian and non-athletic that allowed me to know that I wasn't going to go to the NBA. It didn't matter how much I practiced, and it didn't matter how much I really anchored off to Philippians 4.13, that wasn't getting me into the NBA as much as I wanted to. It wasn't going to happen. So don't abuse this, okay? This is not meant to be whatever. So what is Paul saying? Well, it's connected to the, to the context. He's saying everything I just laid out to you, I can, I can do that. I can be content, and I can learn to be satisfied with my station of life because Christ strengthens me and gives me the grace and the power. The group sing about it. We go forth by grace alone. I can do that through Jesus. And this is, this is vitally important to the first century mind. Because if you had verses 11 and 12 on contentment detached from verse, from verse 13, it would have been a meteor from the stoic sky. A first century mind would have known immediately, if they had a Greco-Roman mind, that that was very stoic, 11 and 12, to say that I can be content with any situation in life. 
that I can find the resources to be able to take whatever life gives me and roll with the punches and not be too high or too low, but be really just kind of middle of the road, plateau. I can just have a, a very tepid response to anything that happens. That, that was, you, could, you can find lines of thinking like 11 and 12 in Seneca's plays that he wrote. He's a contemporary of Paul at the same time frame, a Roman philosopher. But Stoicism said find contentment with self-sufficiency. Find it with your own strength and your own power and look inside yourself and conjure up the resources that you need to be able to take whatever life throws at you and then be able to be okay. And Paul says, I can do that, but it is not self-sufficiency. I want to be very clear. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have Christ's sufficiency. This is, I'm not turning inward here. I'm not trying to selfishly promote myself and look at my own heart and figure it out myself. I'm looking to Jesus, and this should not surprise us. What has Paul told us? Just ignore the rest of the Bible and just take Philippians. Just in this book. I could look at Corinthians and Colossians and a whole bunch of them with Paul, but just Philippians. He told us in chapter 1, verse 6, that he's confident of something that he, which hath begun a good work in me, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What did he tell us five verses later? That he was being filled with the fruits of righteousness which were by Jesus Christ. That I have good coming out of my life. I have righteousness coming out of my life. I have fruit. I'm bearing fruit in my Christian walk, but that is only through Jesus. What did he tell us in Philippians chapter number two? It's God that works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He gives me the desire and he gives me the strength to be able to do it for him. So Paul is extremely, all throughout the book, and this is just the capstone on this thought process, that there is a Christ sufficiency. Paul knows what you should know, that the Christian life is impossible, not difficult, it is impossible in your own power. You can willpower yourself for a while, but you will fall on your face hard. It is impossible in your own power to love people the way that Jesus tells you to love people. You, you cannot be gracious. You cannot stand for truth the way that he tells you to. You cannot endure persecution the way that you're supposed to in your own strength. But you can do that with the grace and the power and the sufficiency and the resources of Jesus. You can. So there's this paradigm for all of us that it would do well to at least remind ourselves of or maybe learn for the first time. That your spiritual life is lived in such a way that you have desperate, deep need, but tremendous spiritual resources from your Heavenly Father. That before your feet hit the ground tomorrow, you should remind yourself that you cannot do the Christian life tomorrow in your own strength. You are very needy spiritually, but he will supply that to you. You can do the Christian life in his power. You can do it in his strength. You cannot do it in your own strength, but in his power and in his strength and with his grace, you can live the Christian life. So if you just got that from this text, just understanding how needy you are, but how powerful and sufficient he is, that would do you a world of good. But if you got all three of these principles, I can't imagine what it would look like in your life or in your home or in our church or in our community if we just got these four verses. That we got the concern principle that, 
my expressions of love encourage people and help them. And I want to tangibly do that for people. If we got the contentment principle that I can take what life throws at me and I can leverage this to learn something and I can be more like Jesus because of my prosperity or because of my despair. Either one, it can, it can work to my advantage and I can learn contentment. To learn the capability principle that only, only in Jesus am I going to be empowered to do the Christian life as it's supposed to be. I want to take two minutes and maybe 60 seconds even and put this plane down for landing. This is written to Christians. And if you're if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this applies, but you got to start at the, at the beginning point. Coming to Christ really is understanding verse 13. That I can only do this through Him. That I have a problem called sin that I cannot do or take care of in and of myself that we have a deep spiritual need and we need to be saved from our sin, to be rescued from our sin. And it is only through that process of understanding how deep your need is and how you cannot get yourself out of that need that you cannot work your way enough, you can't do enough good, you can't earn your way to heaven, you can't do it. But he died for you on a cross. Not just because, but for you, and was buried and rose again to validate everything that he said was true. And if you will turn to him and rely and bank on his grace and his help and his saving power and turn from yourself, then you can begin the Christian walk. Then you can be saved, and then you can begin to learn what it means to live that out day by day by day. But you've got to start there. I know the majority of the room has probably started there. I remember in my life, I had been through a lot of church, a lot of church before I really realized that. But you've got to start there. But if you've started there, then get this. Show love, be content, and only do that through Jesus. It's the only way it's going to work is to rely on Him.